Thank you. Open your Bibles, please, to the book of 2 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, and we'll read there in just a moment. Chapter 1. Next week, we're taking communion together in our Sunday morning services, and that's always a special time for us. And if, if you're uh, in town, we'd love for you to be able to participate. And thank you to those who are joining us online. We're glad you're here. And uh, those of you here who are in person, let's read 2 Corinthians chapter 1. We'll eventually work our way through this whole book of the Bible, but let's read just verses 12, 13, and 14. The Bible says, indeed, this is our boast. The testimony of our conscience is that we have conducted ourselves in the world, and especially toward you, with godly sincerity and purity, not by human wisdom, but by God's grace. For we are writing nothing to you other than what you can read and also understand. I hope you will understand completely, just as you have partially understood us, that we are your reason for pride, just as you also are ours in the day of our Lord Jesus. Let's talk about this boast. The Bible says, indeed, this is our boast. And of course, the boast is not about us, but about the Lord himself. Social media, social media exists, um, I guess, primarily to brag. I mean, that's part of it. Maybe criticism is even more important, maybe a bigger part of it than that. Criticism maybe first, bragging second. Um, but the danger is, of course, you know, the Bible talks often about how we don't boast in ourselves. We boast in the Lord, but not in ourselves. Dizzy Dean was the, uh, old, an old baseball player, Cardinal baseball player. Some of you may have heard his name from the old days. He said, it ain't bragging if you can do it. That's what he said. It ain't bragging if you can do it. But the truth is, the problem is, we can't do it. We can't do it. We, we can't save ourselves. We can't do enough good work. We can't be religious enough to go to heaven. We can't kind of self-improve our way to perfection. We can't do it. And so our boast is in the Lord always and not in ourselves. And the Bible talks about this very often to us. And so let's note a couple of principles that this passage teaches us about boasting in God's work, not in our work, not in ourselves, but in God's work. And let's note a couple of principles together. Would you write this down? The first principle I'd like you to note is we boast in God's work through our conduct, through our conduct. And verse 12 talks to us about our behavior or our conduct. When I was young, uh, in, in report cards, you got not only a grade for academics, but you also got a grade for conduct. And sometimes I didn't do as well in that area of my report card. And they would, teachers would sometimes say something like this. They'd say, Doug talks too much. Little did they know how valuable that would be for me later in life. Although some people in the early service said, Pastor Doug talks too much. That's what some of them said, and it was really, it hurt my feelings deeply. But you know, the truth is, God cares always, like a good class would care about behavior. God cares about our behavior very deeply, very deeply. He cares about your conduct, not just what you know about the Bible, not just how you uh, maybe are perceived by others. He cares about what you do and don't do. So let's talk about what that means and what that looks like. And there are three words I'd like you to write down as we kind of work our way through verse 12. The first word I'd like you to write down is the word conviction. Conviction. The Bible says in verse 12, indeed, this is our boast. The testimony of our conscience, the testimony of our conscience is that we have conducted ourselves in the world and especially toward you with godly sincerity and purity. He's saying my conscience is testifying he said there's a conviction, we use that word sometimes conviction, that God brings to us about our 
attitude and our actions and our behavior and our conduct. Now, one of the jobs of the Holy Spirit, God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That's the nature of God, that He is always Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. One God, always three ways of being. And one of the jobs, one of the specific tasks of the Holy Spirit is to convict. That's one of the things He does. He convicts us of sin and righteousness. He convicts in two different areas. One is for those who are lost. When I, before I was saved, when I was a boy, I came, I came under what I call heavy conviction of sin. And I mean by that, I realized that I was a sinner and that my sin separated me from God. And God in heaven used that, though it was painful. He used that to show me my need for the Lord. And some of you are here who have never trusted Christ as Savior. And God is convicting you. And you, much, you don't like it very much, perhaps, as well. But God is convicting you for a reason. There's a purpose to the pain. So don't run from that pain. Don't just medicate yourself past that pain. Don't just ignore it or turn the TV up louder. But recognize that God is trying to get your attention. He's reminding you that you need to be born again, that you need to be saved, and only Christ can do that, that you're a sinner and you can't self-improve to perfection. And while you might look good in comparison to other people, you can't compare favorably to God. And God wants you to be saved. And I've been praying. In fact, I prayed early this morning that people today right here in this worship center and online would give their life to Christ and trust Him as Savior. And the Holy Spirit is perhaps for some of you right now convicting you that you are a sinner who needs a Savior. God does that because He cares about you. And He does that to remind you that He loves you. And he's pointing out that Jesus is the only one who could die for you. And he took your place on that cross. And you can be saved by Jesus and by trusting him as Savior. And I'm praying today you'll give your life to Christ. But it's conviction, not just for, for the lost, but conviction for Christians as well. The Holy Spirit convicts us when we do wrong. God always cares about our behavior. And he convicts us of our need to follow him. And maybe you've drifted from God. Maybe you've gotten distracted by the things of the world. And the Holy Spirit will convict you that you need to come back into right relationship with Him. Or He'll convict you about your behavior. Or He'll convict you about something He wants to remove from your life or add to it. And so let God do that conviction in your life. Paul said, indeed, this is our boast. The testimony of our conscience is that we have conducted ourselves in the world and especially toward you with godly sincerity and purity. He's saying, I've tried to live by my conviction in the world, in, in my job or my family or my school. God cares about that. Our world is not always friendly to faith. Have you been made aware of that? Sometimes the world doesn't care very much about the things God cares about. But God wants you to live your life in the world. Christ wants you to be, to, uh, be a witness of him in this world. And I want people to be able to see Christ in you. And if you know Christ as Savior, let people see Christ in your life, in your attitude, in your actions. And it's, he said, it's not just the conduct in the world, but especially toward you. He's talking to the church at Corinth. And he's saying, you matter to us, and we want to live with conviction toward you. And we want you to be able to see specifically Christ in us. And we want you to grow in your faith. So that word conviction, there's a second word I want you to write down. Write down the word action. Action. God cares about what we do. And the Bible says here, the testimony of our conscience is that we have conducted ourselves in the, in the world, and especially toward you, note this, with godly sincerity and purity. 
with godly sincerity and purity. Now, God cares about sincerity, not just what you do, but why you do what you do. He always cares that your heart be sincere toward the things of God. God wants sincerity in your life. He cares about the motives behind what you do. God will always care about that. You may remember in the Bible, there were people who were living in hypocrisy. It wasn't just in Bible times, was it? And God spoke harshly about hypocrisy and the danger of it because he wants us to have sincerity. He wants it to come from your heart. He wants you to grow in your actions, but he wants it to come from the right heart. And he wants your motives to be proper. The Bible says it's with godly sincerity and with purity. God cares about purity because he cares about holiness. He doesn't want us just to live sometimes for him, but all the time. Have you ever noticed God has a tendency to point out to us the areas he wants us to grow in? We might say, but, but God, I'm good in these areas. And God, of course, loves that we are following him in the right ways in particular areas of life. But if there's something in your life that's wrong, God brings conviction to you because he wants to change the action because purity always matters. If you had breakfast this morning, and if you didn't, you know, I'm sorry to bring up the subject, but if maybe you had breakfast this morning and maybe you had, I don't know, maybe you had porridge. Do people eat porridge? I'm not even sure exactly what porridge is, but let's, maybe that's what you had this morning, a big heaping bowl of porridge. And you, want, you might say, well, listen, I had a big bowl of porridge with just a little bit, just a little bit of poison, just a little bit. It wasn't a lot. It was mainly porridge. But I did add a little bit of poison. Well, it'll be a problem, right? Because purity in porridge matters. We want pure porridge. We, that's very important to us. Well, we say a little poison. Why would we why would we care just a little bit? Because we know the damage that it does. And God cares about what we call a little sin because of the damage that it does. And the goal of the enemy in leading you to wrong activity is to, it's not to make your life like joyful and great and wonderful. And it's to, the goal of the enemy is to destroy you and kill you and defeat you in every way. That's his goal. You might as well know that coming right up front. He wants to destroy and defeat and damage you in every way. That's the goal of sin. That's the goal of the enemy. And so God in heaven calls us to purity. He wants us to do the things that he calls us to do and to do it consistently. So God cares about conviction and action. There's a third word I want you to write down. Would you write down the word agency? Agency. So what is the agency by which this happens? What's the force that causes this right conduct? Well, the Bible says in verse 12, it's not by human wisdom, but by God's grace. It's not by human wisdom, but by God's grace. So God is reminding us that the way we have the proper conduct is not by our human wisdom, what we think, what we like, what we feel, what we want. It's something deeper than that. I'm reading a biography right now of Benjamin Franklin. I'm in a little bit about Franklin, you know, the kite and electricity and things, but I'm learning some things. I, I will say, um, I appreciate Franklin more than I admire him, the more I read about him. I appreciate him more than I admire him. I mean, he's a gifted, talented founding father, but there's some things that are less attractive about him. He is a, uh, he was one of the few founding fathers that was certainly 
more of a deist. He believed there was a God, but that God was distant and that God didn't care about the details of life. He kind of rebelled against the um, Puritanism of his day and, and he, he just sort of made God what he wanted God to be. May I say, he's not alone in that. He kind of made God what he wanted God to be. Instead of recognizing who God is and conforming to what God wants, often we just try to remake God into the image we want him to be. And that's what Franklin sort of did. But he decided he needed morality. And so he, he did what he called a moral perfection project, a moral perfection project. And he listed a, several things that he wanted to be morally perfect in. Now he slanted it toward his direction to make it more favorable to the things that he liked and kind of ignored some of the problems that he had. That's a common story as well. But he started this moral perfection project, and he just listed some things. He said, I'm going to try to get really good at these things, and he listed these various things and wanted to be morally perfect in those areas. And then he said these words. Maybe some of you will relate to what Franklin said. He said, I was surprised to find myself so much fuller of thoughts, of faults, than I had imagined. I was surprised to find myself so much fuller of faults than I had imagined. Well, the more he looked at himself, though he tried to see himself through the very best of lenses, he did invent the bifocals, by the way. The more he saw, I am not so morally perfect, even though I slanted in my direction. And the Bible says it's not by human wisdom that, our, that our, the goal of our life is not just to self-improve by our own power or strength or ability or talent. Listen, I'm talking to a lot of people here who've got abilities and talents and sharp and studied and educated, and I'm grateful for all of those things, but there's something greater than human wisdom that is needed. And the Bible says, not by human wisdom, but by God's grace. Paul's saying, that's how my conduct glorifies God, by God's grace. God's grace is the love that God gives us, though we don't deserve it. Grace is God's love given to us, though we don't deserve it. It's not that God is paying us back for what we deserve. It's that God loves us even though we don't deserve it. Did you know God loves you even though you don't deserve it? It's not that God in heaven said, you know, I have just noticed how good you are and how wonderful you are, and I've decided to love you. It's that God knows the truth about you, that there are plenty of moral faults in you more than you suspected and that he loves you despite that and sent his son Jesus to die on the cross to pay the penalty for those sins so that you can be forgiven of sins and have life eternal with the Lord. Some of you today, I'm praying, will give your life to Christ. And the Bible reminds us that God's grace is what leads us to right conduct. Grace leads us to right conduct. So I'd say it like this. We aren't saved by good works. We can't do enough good works to be saved. We aren't saved by good works but we are saved for good works. We are saved for good works. God saves us by his love and his grace, and we don't deserve it. But God wants us, because of salvation, to do the right things and to live like he wants us to live. We're saved for good works. So Benjamin Franklin did not, like, he wasn't really a big fan of preachers always. He didn't always like preachers. But he did like this one preacher, a guy named George Whitfield. Whitfield became famous during what we call now the Great Awakening or the First Great Awakening. 
it's spelled Whitefield, but he was from England, and he pronounced it Whitfield. And Whitfield came to the United States, and he was preaching the message of grace. You need to be saved by trusting Christ alone, that you can't be good enough to go to heaven. And um, he preached that message faithfully. But what Franklin noticed about him was something he didn't always see in the ministers of that day. Whitfield believed that not only are you saved by God's grace, not by works, but you are saved for good works. You're not saved by good works, but you're saved for good works. And so Whitfield not only preached about the importance of salvation, the most important decision of your life is what would you do with Jesus. The greatest decision of life is salvation. But he also cared about people. And he did all kinds of benevolent works that really caught the attention of Franklin. Uh, he started an orphanage in Georgia, and he was raising money for that orphanage uh, while he was in the United States. So Franklin, Benjamin Franklin, who wrote to Whitfield until, the, until Whitfield's death, I mean, he stayed in correspondence, and Whitfield many times shared the gospel with Benjamin Franklin. But Franklin went to hear Whitfield speak one time, and he was speaking about the orphanage and the importance of it. And he realized Whitfield's going to take an, he's going to take an offering at the end of this. And he had in his money, I'll use these, the, the British currency then, but I'll, I'll call it pennies and quarters and dollars. And he said, Franklin said to himself, I'm not going to give this guy any money. And then as Whitfield continued to talk, he said, well, I'll give him the pennies. And then Whitfield kept talking and he said, all right, I'll give him the quarters. And then when Whitfield got done talking about the importance of right behavior as a response to grace, Franklin ended up giving everything he had in his pockets to the orphanage. And it's just his reminder of saying, God, God saved us for something more than just heaven. Listen, if it, if it was heaven alone, salvation would be worth it. If it was just for eternity, it would be worth it. But God saves us, not just for one day, but for this day. And he saves us for good works. And so your conduct will always matter to God. It will always matter to God. So don't do the argument with God. I can, God, I can live like I want. I can do how I, whatever I want. Instead, see God's grace as a means by which you begin to live for God, for something greater than yourself. And that you're saved by God's grace, but you're saved for good works. And if you'll put that together, what a blessing that will be to your life and to your future. We boast in God's work through our conduct. Now, there's a second principle I want you to write down. Would you note this? We boast in God's work through our connections. We boast in God's work through our connections. Legos, the little child toy, are made for connections, right? They're not just made to be a paperweight. They're made for connections. And so are we. God made us for connections. When we come to know Him as Savior, we're saved for connections. These days of, iso of isolation can lead us in two directions. We can, because of them, all the more appreciate fellowship, or we can find ourselves accepting isolation. And I believe a little of both is going to happen in, this, in these next days. Some people are going to just remain isolated, even people who name the name of Christ. And they're going to say, listen, I, I'm okay. I'm okay without the church. I don't need other Christians. I'll just do it personally and privately as though the Lord Jesus wasn't the one who founded the church. As though fellowship doesn't, didn't matter. As though a verse that teaches us that as iron sharpens iron, so one man sharpens another didn't exist. 
many people, that's what's going to happen. I'm afraid, already happening for many. They're going to accept isolation, and they're going to say, I'm going to live apart from these connections. Or, because of these days of isolation, we can say all the more, I see the importance and the value of fellowship, that God made me for connections, and that I need it, and that God wants me to, He wants other people in my life, and He wants me in the lives of others. And listen, some of you are more introverted, and that's more difficult for you, but there are some difficult things God calls us to do. Don't run from difficulty, and it is in our interest to follow God's purpose in this and get connected to others. There's a value to it and a benefit to it and a blessing that comes with it. And I'm praying God will remind you of the importance of connection. And really, much of 2 Corinthians is talking about the church at Corinth and God's plan and purpose for them and the connection that Paul wants with them. And so let's note a couple of things here about our connections. Number one, note we communicate. We communicate. In verse 13, Paul talks about writing and understanding. He said, we're writing nothing to you other than what you can read and also understand. I hope you will understand completely just as you have partially understood us. Paul's saying, I'm writing you a letter for a reason. I'm communicating you with you for a purpose. I want your understanding. By the way, God in heaven has communicated with us through his word. He wants us to know his thoughts. He wants us to know his direction. He wants you to know more of how he wants you to live your life and what he wants you to do. And so he communicates to us. So that's why we so often emphasize reading God's word for yourself. You don't have to just take someone's word for it. You can read the New Testament for yourself. What does God say? What does God want? God in heaven communicates to us. He wants us to know the truth. He wants us to understand his purpose and plan. And by the way, it's not just that he wrote to us. He wants us to understand. And so we can study God's word and dig deeper into God's word. Sometimes I find myself reading God's word and not paying attention. Well, you know, I, I uh, get paid to read the Bible, as I sometimes say. And, but God wants me to do more than just read it. He wants me to understand it, to dig deeply, and to understand more of God's purpose. Because God in heaven communicates to us. We talk to God in prayer. He loves for that communication. He talks to us through his word and through the witness of the Holy Spirit. And God wants communication with us. He made us for a connection with him. And we are to communicate with him and through that with others. And Paul saw something of that and the value of that in the church. We can apply that in other areas. You can apply that to dating and to marriage. I'm just telling you, if you want to have a healthy relationship with someone else, you're going to have to learn how to communicate with them. My uh, wife and I are different. We're just different. We have different personalities and backgrounds. And there's some of the things I like best about Vicki that she's different than I am. That's, that's a, God made her different, and I'm glad. That's part of why I love her so much. But we are different, and it can make communication a little more difficult. Sometimes we'll have disagreements, or we'll see something in a different way, and we'll talk about it together. And I'll say to her, or she may say to me, after some discussion about something, she, she may say, or I may say, do you know what I mean? And I want to say, sometimes in response, I have no idea what you mean. I don't, I don't know what you mean at all. No, I don't get this at all. We think somewhat differently. One of the helpful books for us has been uh, a book by Gary Chapman. Years ago, Gary Chapman uh, spoke here at our church, and he wrote a book called The Five Love Languages. And it talks about the different ways that we express love or communicate love or receive love. Things like uh, affirmation and acts of service and quality time, things like that, five different attributes that 
are ways that people hear love. And Vicky and I think about it differently. In fact, he called it love languages. And it is, sometimes for us, it's like a language. We're just different. We, we don't communicate as clearly. I, had, I have old brothers and I, no sisters. And the girl world was so different. I mean, I had a mom, but, you know, moms don't count when it comes to that area. And it's just so different learning to communicate. But it's worth it. And you want a healthy relationship, you're going to have to learn how to communicate, how to disagree, how to argue fairly, how to fight in a fair way, how to disagree in a right sort of way, how to see a different perspective, how to listen, how to really hear and understand, how to communicate well. And God in heaven, of course, cares about communicating with us. And through that, we can learn to communicate with others or even in friendships. So many friendships don't last because we fail to communicate. And so we have a tendency for them to become one-sided. And Healthy relationships give and take. They're not just taking. They bless and are bless, a blessing. It's not just being blessed by a relationship, but being a blessing too. It's one of the reasons why we emphasize so often life groups here, because we know there's power to communication. We want to know what God says. We want to study together. We want to understand what God is teaching us, and we need each other, and there's a power to that communication. And so we boast in God's work through our connections, and one of the ways we connect is through communication. But there's a second thing I want you to note. That is, we value. Our connections matter because we value. Verse 14 is an important verse. It ends with these words. Paul says, we are the reason for your pride, just as you are also ours in the day of our Lord Jesus. Paul's saying, here's here's what we're proud of, people. Here's what we value, people. Here's what matters, people. Our church is not primarily about buildings. It's about people. Now, we're thankful for the buildings. People have sacrificed for them. You know, they didn't just grow up like a mushroom one night. You know, people sacrificed. There are people in our church who have given above and beyond their tithes for 25 years consecutively to building programs. That's, that's how much they care about it. But you know why they do that? For people. And not just so we can have buildings. For people. We're glad for programs. Man, I love that we can care about preschoolers. Man, I hope you heard well that need for more preschool workers, how thankful I am for the opportunity we have to teach little boys and girls about the things of God. I'm thankful for our programs for kids, and I'm glad for the ones for our teenagers, for our young adults, for the not-so-young adults, our senior adults. I mean, listen, programs matter. It's a way to organize and structure, but they only, they, it, the end is not the program. It's a people. It's people, and God values people. They matter deeply to God. They matter deeply to God. Can I, tell, can I tell you, you matter deeply to God. God loves you deeply. He cares about you deeply. Listen, God in heaven knows your weaknesses and struggles. It's not that we value people because people are perfect. I don't know if you've noticed this yet, but the people sitting around you are not perfect. Did you notice that? Have you become aware of that fact already? That they are frail and fallen and sinful people, and while we're on the subject that the person sitting right where you're sitting, exactly where you're sitting, 
isn't so perfect either. Have you noticed that? But we value them because God values them, because they're created in the image of God. And when they give their life to Christ, they're adopted into God's family. And so we value people because God values them. They matter to him. The church matters because God made the church. That church of Corinth or the church in O'Fallon matters to God. And would you note as well that we value people eternally, eternally. The Bible says, we are the reason for your pride, just as you are also ours in the day of our Lord Jesus. He's talking about eternity here. He's talking about the day when the Lord returns and how we will see more clearly then the value of people and, and how eternally value they, valuable they are and how much they'll matter in heaven. I don't, know, I don't know how you view heaven. There's some really odd ways people view heaven sometimes. They think of heaven as boring or, you know, heaven is going to be far greater than however you can picture it. The, the greatest you can picture it is better than that. And once in a while, God gives us a little foretaste of glory divine, you know, a little picture of the joy that will be ours in heaven, a, a, a little reminder of meaning and purpose. Heaven will be that and more. It's, the description is more than we can put into our language, the greatness of heaven. And of course, seeing the Lord Jesus, the one who loves us so much face to face and being, knowing him fully as we're fully known, that's in itself a great thing about heaven. But I suspect one of the many great things about heaven will be meeting some people that you had some impact on in this world. And because you gave, they heard the gospel. Or you're the one who taught that preschool class where they first heard about a God who loved them. Or you invited them to a church service where they began to consider faith and gave their life to Christ. Or maybe you led them to Jesus. And you were a witness to them at work or in your school or in your family, and God used you, and in heaven, man, I mean, a lot of great things to consider about heaven, but to imagine that God used us in this world of time to make a difference in eternity, listen, that will matter so much, and God in heaven would use you, God in heaven would use you to help people connect to the Father himself and find salvation full and free in Jesus. God would use you for that purpose. And that's our boast. We don't have anything to offer them except the Savior who has everything to offer them. Will you bow with me for a word of prayer? As we pray, maybe you're here, you, you're under conviction of the Holy Spirit. When I talk about being convicted, that's you. You need to be saved. You've tried to be good, but You'll never be good enough to get to heaven. You can't self-improve to perfection. But the Holy Spirit is convicting you of sin and righteousness, and he does that, even though it's painful, so that there'll be a blessing through that pain. And today, I want to ask you to give your life to Christ right where you are. Would you just admit to God that you're a sinner? And God, I've gone my way instead of your way. Would you, would you turn from your sin? God, I want to repent and turn from that sin. Would you place your faith in Jesus who died for you and rose from the grave for you, would you ask him to save you? Ask him to save you. Give your life to Christ, and he'll save you right now. And if that's happened for you, if you've given your life to Christ, 
man, I want to hear about it. No one in the world, I don't think, will be any more excited than I will, will be to know that you've given your life to Christ. Grow in your faith, learn more. But some of you here, God brought you to this moment and the conviction of the Holy Spirit all led to this so that you would give your life to Christ. Christians, many of you are here. God's been convicting you about following him, maybe something in the area of your conduct. And he's reminding you of how he wants you to live. I'm going to ask you to say yes to him. Maybe he's been speaking to you about your connections, your connection to him, and through that, your connection to others. Would you say, God, use me to make a difference in this world. Help my connection to you to deepen so that I can help other people to connect with you as well. And through that, Lord, would you help me to love people like you love them and care about people like you care about them. And Father, I want to thank you for the power of your word, the hope that it gives us. I want to thank you for loving a church at Corinth and loving a church in O'Fallon. I want to thank you. You, you convict us because you love us, that that pain has a purpose and a reason. I'm praying, Lord, you'll help people today who have prayed to receive you as Savior to begin to grow in faith and help people to be drawn to faith, to relationship with you. Help us to live out our faith. And Father, I thank you for the difference you make in us and through us. And Lord, I pray you'll help us to live the good works that you've called us to live. And we pray in the powerful and wonderful name of Jesus. Amen and amen.